0: Open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be because Paul has this very interesting idea that he pulls out. And uh, as you turn to Colossians chapter 2, let me jump right into this. Um, What what story is this? Um, A a virgin-born hero goes through a time of temptation in his life and ultimately defeats evil by taking evil onto himself and sacrificing himself so that peace comes over the whole world. What story is that? All right. Star Wars. You're right. All right? That is the story of Star Wars and Darth Vader. All right? And the reality is, of course, it's, it's the gospel too, and it's the story of Jesus. And so one of the questions that we have in life is, why do we see these patterns and these stories that come about where there's all these themes, right? And you could go through uh, ancient culture and look at the stories as I'm going to talk about uh, the Egyptian stories of Horus and Dionysus and all these kind of things. And, and you start to look at them and go, man, there's these parallels. There's these ideas. There's these seeds of of, of threads of ideas that go through history. Why is that? And uh, a lot of people go away to college And they hear that. They hear that, oh my goodness, I went and watched Superman. And it's this idea also of this kind of weirdly born, perfect person who comes from another world and and nothing can really touch him. And he has this kind of ability to do miracles and and walk on water and fly, like we see Jesus fly at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And and it's this Superman story and he comes to redeem the world. And it's some of the comics, he actually dies and then rises again to to, to bring about peace. I mean, what is going on here? So a lot of people go into college and they go, oh my goodness, there's all these predated Christian stories. So Christianity, ergo, must not be true. And that's the conclusion that they draw. But I think the Bible actually has a, a more interesting idea, an interesting conclusion about why we see these things. Now... Before we get to that, um, here's, a, here's a recognition. The first thing we all have to understand is that we're all very different in this room, right? We all have very different personalities in this room. Some of you are uh, math types. So, how many of you, raise your hand if you're kind of that side of the brain, math admin, you keep a calendar, you probably might have a Blackberry, I'm not sure. There's, uh, there's organization to your life, all right? Even if you're watching this on video, it's okay, raise your hand, all right. So, so there's math-type people, right? And you're like organized, you like charts and flowcharts and brochures and that kind of stuff, you like, but you know, that kind of stuff. Then raise your hand if you're, uh, if you're more of like a, a, a musical type. All right. You love music. You're kind of wired for music. All right. Yeah. See you guys out there. Uh What about like if you're an artist? All right. You love like just story, like you love just like painting or, or, uh <clears throat> or love films, love watching films, love studying films. All right. So we're all different personalities. Every human being is different, right? We have this kind of Wiring. I look at my own kids, and uh, my my middle child is very. Uh, she's very soft. She gets offended very quickly. All right. So literally this weekend, uh, I just saw this this contrast between my two kids. Where my middle kid, somebody said something to her out in the backyard yesterday, and she was like, "Oh my God!" And so she cried and she ran inside and she needed hugs and like deal with her soul and like, oh my goodness, you're so soft and we got to deal with that and we got to figure that. And then my youngest kid is a complete bulldog. All right. If you ever meet Bella in the foyer, run, man, because she will, she, she just like, I'll be like, Bella. I picked her up out of bed. I said, you got to go to the bathroom before you go to bed. She said, no. And I'm like, okay. And I picked her up, I guess. And I'm not kidding you. She just grabbed both my cheeks like this one. And then like bit my leg. All right. I was like, get off me. All right, go. There's massively. All right. Now now you're like, dude, this guy doesn't know how to raise kids. True. So that's why I have a wife. Uh, So. I have this, this, the, the, these kids are all different personalities. and We're all different personalities in here. Some of you love math types and, and some of you are art types now, but here's the reality. All right, here's what we got to understand. Even though we're all different, we all are artists in some sense. And here's what I mean. We all tell stories all the time. Our life basically revolves around stories, telling them, reading them, understanding. Now, here's what I mean. Think about what you'll do today when you go out for lunch when you hang out with friends, what do you do the whole time? You just tell stories the entire time. No one sits and just downloads content and data at their friends without stories about how that connects to life. That's all we do. You'll go out for like All right, this day, I, I sat with Joe today, and Joe told me this. And then over here, I sat with my kids, and we went to this soccer game. All you'll do is tell stories. If you're the person who doesn't tell you just download data for two hours. Like, we have a, we have a, a, a supper, a dinner club that goes out once a month, and we all sit around. And all we do the whole time is tell each other stories. The day someone shows up and downloads straight data, it's the day we don't invite that guy back, all right? Because he's boring. And if you're like, oh, I'm not the guy who tells stories, and I don't know why no one invites me out. It's because all we want to hear are stories from you. We want to hear about your life. We want to see how your life is framed. Not around a, a non, I'm not reading a non-fiction book. I'm not going out with you so you can, you can be a textbook for me. I want to get into your life. I want to figure out who you are, and how do I figure that out? By telling stories, this is what we do. We are all artists in that sense. We all read stories, connect to stories. There is no culture in human history that has not revolved around this. We don't have the ability not to tell stories. And here's what I mean. Now, Partly why we do them, why we tell stories is because it invests meaning in our life. And here's what I mean. When you look at the stars, the planets, ever since we were walking around trying to figure out the universe, what do we, when we look at the stars and the planets, We don't call them like, hey, there's planet 742, right? What do we call them? Venus, right? Mars, Jupiter. What are those? Those are Greco-Roman characters of stories in the Greco-Roman world where they talked about the gods and the goddesses and how they would fight each other. So we look to the stars, even our calendars, January, greet God. March, greet God. May, greet God. June, greet God. We try to invest even our calendar, because it'd be boring. Just month one, month two. I think I can meet you month eight. We don't do that, because we want to go, I want to I meet you in March. What's March? The God of War. I'm going to kill you, or whatever. We try to invest. We try to invest our life with significance by telling stories, by creating characters, by helping people understand that there's a bigger transcendent narrative going on in the universe, and then we start to try to locate ourselves within it. And we start to understand, why do I exist? What am I here to do? This is what we've always done. what, What did Jesus do with his life, right? Now, I know we just went through the Sermon on the Mount, and he did a lot of you know, downloading of information there. But even in the midst of it, he was telling stories. Jesus, most of his ministry was him walking around telling stories, right? Hey, there's a farmer and he has seed. And he throws it around, and, he, and, he, and now some of us are like, we don't understand the agrarian world, so we're like, well, I don't, you know, we, we have trouble with it, right? And we're like, I don't understand farm and seed, and people in Langley and Abbotsford, they'll be okay. But so other people, they try to connect to the, the, the seed, and they're like, I don't understand, why is he a farmer? What is the seed doing? I don't understand the soil. But what did Jesus do? He tried to frame meaning in the context of story. This is what we do. Anti uh, Wright, who's a, Uh, a New Testament scholar, he talks about the fact that all of our worldviews are framed around four basic things. He says the first thing is stories, the stories we tell. And then the stories we tell lead to questions. And then those questions lead to symbols. Like if you go back to Jewish culture, they have the symbol of the temple. And the symbol, in our culture, the symbol of the shopping mall. And what it says about us. And then all of those symbols go into praxis, what he calls praxis, meaning the way that we live our life that stories are the first thing, they're the foundation. And stories ultimately end up informing what we do with our time, with our bodies, with our money, with our life. If your story is a purely atheistic evolutionary story, where we came from nothing, where we're going to nothing, where simply the strong kill the weak, then how, we, how can you act? I'm not saying atheists actually act like this. But if your story basically says strong animals kill weak animals, then that's okay then what do we do with the poor? We don't have to take care of the poor. What do we do if we see our enemy drowning? We don't have to take care of him. That's how a story informs praxis, the way we live our life. But if your story is the Jesus story, who says you have to love your enemies, who was very rich and he became poor to make us rich, then we have to take care of the poor. we see our enemy drowning, we have to save him. This is how stories actually impact how we live our life. And it happens every day. Everything we believe about the world is a foundation. So before I was a Christian, Right? I believed something about sexuality that was basically, hey, you got to go out and get as much of it as you want because it's all about pleasure. Before I was a Christian, what was money? Just get the most of it you can. What was marriage? Marriage was a thing that I could, because my parents were divorced. Right, My parents divorced when I was nine years old. So marriage is the kind of thing that I always thought the story was I enter it, and if she doesn't make me happy, then I can trade her in and get somebody else. Right? And then I, mar- and I always thought that was the reality until I married Erin. And I realized that if I did that, she'd kill me in my sleep. But, uh, but that's the kind of story I was living out of. So it would inform my practices. Practice, it would inform my life and the way I behaved in the world. And so some people look at stories and they say, oh, it's just escapism. Right? People, people actually said Tolkien when he wrote Lord of the Rings, oh, you're just writing escapism. The reality is I don't think so. I think when we go sit and watch Batman four times and Superman and and we watch Captain America, I don't think it's escapism. I think what we're trying to do is, is locate meaning. And we're trying to say, man, there's a transcendent story. That's why the superheroes appeal to us. That what is going on in the universe? I think there's something bigger than myself in the universe and I want to try to tap into it and understand it. The reality is this. Sociologists say that Western secular culture, you and me, Um, We are the worst at dealing with suffering out of anyone in history. That when 9-11 hit, we were devastated. When the Boston bombings hit, devastated. Shootings in Paris, devastated. Tsunami, devastated. Western secular culture doesn't deal with suffering well. And sociologists say the reason is, is because we have no story. We just have an atheistic secular framework to which we can't locate. What is the meaning of suffering in the context of an atheistic story? There isn't one. It's just distraction. It's to eliminate. There's no meaning in it. So what, I, what we see is we have to borrow stories. Oh, I'm thinking of you. Oh, sending out nice thoughts for you. Dreaming of you today. Heart, heart, you know, whatever. We kind of borrow things from other stories and religions. But the reality is this. Listen. Maybe you're exploring Christianity, all right? And you're here and you're wondering. Um, Here's what you got to understand. If you haven't found a story that is meaningful, if you haven't found a story that fulfills your soul in the sense that it explains with coherence the question of origins, meaning, morality, destiny, if you don't have a story that can answer those questions, you have to understand there are better stories on offer to you. See, here's the first point Paul makes in Colossians 2. He's going to unpack the gospel, which I'm going to explain to you. Uh, But in verse 8, he starts it off by making the point that there are better, more fulfilling stories than others. So he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, chapter 2, verse 8, and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so he says, there's a story which is fulfillment in Christ, which is the better, more fulfilling, meaningful, origin, meaning, morality, destiny story that frames and locates your life, and your suffering, and your joy, and your pleasure, and your hopes. That's a story you live for, you die for. But don't let people distract you with a story that's not as good as that, that's not as fulfilling to your soul as that. Because here's the reality. There are better stories than other stories, right? Let me give you an example. Uh, take, Take the world of music. You take the the, the 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 poem of Don McLean. American Pie, came out in 1971, alright? And it was all about the angst and the unrest and fighting the powers, Vietnam, the unrest, the sexual revolution of an entire generation in the 60s. And in American Pie, here's what Don McLean says, when the jester sang for the king and queen and the cody borrowed from James Dean and a voice that came from you and me. Oh, and while the king was looking down, the jester stole his thorny crown. The courtroom was adjourned. No verdict was returned. While Lennon read a book on Marx, the quartet practiced in the park, and we sang dirges in the dark the day the music died. Now you're all singing it in your brain. Right. There's that kind of poetry that captures the unrest and the, and the, and the beauty and the, the context of fighting the powers and how we feel. I mean, it's beautiful. And then there are worse stories. For instance, the artists of my generation. Let's take Beyonce. I just grabbed some random lyrics from the Queen Bee and one of her big hits. Girls, we run this mother. Yeah. Girls, we run this mother. Yeah. Girls, we run this mother. Yeah. Who run the world? Girls, who run this mother? girls some of them men think they freak this like we do but no they don't boy don't even try to touch this boy this beat is crazy this is how they made me houston texas baby this goes out to all my girls that's in the club rocking the latest who will buy it for themselves and get more money later I think I need a barber. <laughs> what? <laughs> all right, so, so maybe my generation's a little shallower, all right? Because there are better stories out there than other stories. That's what we have to understand. Now... There's not only better stories than other stories, that you need to trade in one story for another if it's not fulfilling and meaningful in your life. There's also a lot of similarities in the stories that we tell. All right? uh, Christopher Booker wrote a book called Seven Basic Plots. And what he talks about is the idea that, that most of the stories we tell from the time we were doing hieroglyphs um, are, are basically fall in seven categories. That Cinderella is the same story as the Ugly Ducking. Duckling is the same story as Pretty Woman. The Jaws is the same story as Beowulf. It's all the same. They all fit into the same basic category in the way that their plots actually function. And so here's the seven basic plots that he talks about. The first plot is he talks about rags to riches. All right? meaning there's a humble and disregarded hero that gets raised to a position of great power over time. That's, you know, Pretty Woman, Cinderella, Ugly Duckling, um, uh, uh, Ricky Bobby, (laughs) for those of you tapping into more of that. um, That's a rags-to-riches story, all right? There's overcoming the monster. That's the second plot that Christopher Booker talks about, Overcoming the Monster, which is basically the, the, the plot of every horror story ever told. If you look at Beowulf, which is one of the oldest stories, uh, Beowulf is basically the same story as Jaws, in the sense that there's a, there's a seaside community that gets disrupted by a, a mysterious monster that's ripping everybody apart, tearing innocent victims apart, and so the seaside community needs a hero. And the hero ultimately steps up, and he says, I'm going to go and take care of this. And he goes out, and he wars against this monster under the water. All right, He deals with this monster, he kills him, he comes back, and the seaside community is victorious, and they celebrate, and it brings peace again to the world. That's overcoming the monster. Now keep these framed in the back of your brain. All right. Thirdly, there's the quest. All right, the quest is basically, you know, Lord of the Rings. You're going out, you're doing something great. It's King Arthur, it's all the rest of it. And then there's comedy, and then there's voyage and return, where you leave one spot, and you actually come back to the other Lord of the Rings again. You leave the Shire at the beginning, and you do this great quest, and you defeat Sauron and Mortar and you come back to the Shire, and the story actually ends back in the Shire, voyage and return. And then there's tragedy, and then there's rebirth. All these stories, we fit into this basic seven basic patterns— from Egypt to the stuff you're watching on Netflix. Now, Christopher Booker asks this very compelling question, which is kind of the fundamental question of the series. Not so much is this true that all the stories we tell fall into these seven categories. Why? Why do we tell stories like this? So Christopher Booker asks this question. Are we to assume, and he's not a Christian, he's just a social psychologist. Uh, He says, are we to assume that the writers of Jaws had been influenced by Beowulf, or that Nightmare on Elm Street, or Halloween, or Friday the 13th had been influenced by Beowulf. There's a community, a mysterious monster, disrupts things, you need a hero to go fight it, and then it brings peace, all right? Same basic structure. Are we to assume that the writer of Jaws had sat down and read Beowulf that day and went, oh, I know, I'll just apply this monster to a shark? Of course not, he says. Yet the fact remains that the stories share remarkable similar pattern. One, which moreover has formed the basis for countless other stories in the literature of mankind, and at many different times and all over the world. So what is the explanation? What is astonishing is how not curious we are as to why we indulge in this strange form of activity. What real purpose does it serve? That's the question of the series. What purpose do these stories actually serve? And I think the Bible gives a crazy different answer than many Christians actually give. So let me unpack for you Uh, at 30,000 feet, what the Bible explains the gospel as, as the backdrop, and then see if we can answer that question. So you got Colossians 2. You looked at verse 8. He says, some stories are better than others. Don't let people take you captive by bad stories. And then verse 9, he says this. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells. And so he says, the story that we're talking about, talking about Christ, is about a human being who comes to earth, humbles himself, but he's full deity. So he's God, but he comes to earth. And so he, he has the full divinity in his bodily form. All right. So a God incarnates and comes down to earth. All right. Not the first time this story is told, but Paul says, this is the gospel story. So in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's God. And then this God is a king. He says, verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He has ultimate authority in the universe. That's why he can do miracles. That's why he can walk on water, feed 5,000. He can raise people from the dead because he has all rule and authority. He's a king. He's a king with power. And what does this king do? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, Jesus comes, dies, raised from the dead, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So this God made human beings, put us in the world, and then we decided to sin against him, and so we rebelled, And we went against him and we chose ourselves over him. So, what did he do? Did he sit back and just wait for us to figure it out and create religions and create rituals and build temples so that we could finally get to heaven one day? No. He comes in bodily form as a king to come and accomplish something, to have a victory, to destroy what? To destroy the monster. This is what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made a life together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He goes to a cross. This is what he's gonna say in 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, sacrifices himself, takes your sin on himself so that you can't, you don't have to pay for your sin yourself. Jesus, this God-man came and did it for you, went to war, which is what 15 is about, Disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, 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 a phrasing about the demonic, about the satanic, about evil itself. That he disarmed them. He went to war against the monster. There's literally, Revelation 12 describes Satan as what? A dragon. So there's literally a dragon that needs to get slayed. And Jesus comes and he slays them. And it says, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He comes and wins a victory against the monster. Now, here's what we've got to understand. All of that is the gospel story. God came Died for sin, rose again in order to give eternal life. And then what we do with that story, what we do with that story is a second question. How you respond. The Bible says you're supposed to repent, you're supposed to believe, but but in a nutshell, that's the gospel narrative, all right, laid out. Part of the gospel is not what you do with it. Good news is just good news. It says, here's what happened. It's like a news report. What you do with what happened is not actually technically part of the gospel. You have to figure out what you're going to do with it. If someone gets up and gives a news report and says, there's traffic, you're going through the tunnel at Richmond, and there's traffic backed up, don't go there. That's the news, and this is what happened. It's not asking your opinion. It's not saying, hey, do you understand that Jesus Christ died for your sin? If you choose to accept it, he did. No, he did. This was a historical moment. What you do with it... I can't go through the tunnel today. I'm going to go around the tunnel. I'm going to go elsewhere. I'm going to do this. That's the second question. But this is the story laid out for you. God himself came, defeated sin on the cross for your sin, rose again for your salvation. Then this question, becomes: what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Now, here's the problem. The problem is, um, a bunch of years ago, a, a movie came out on the internet and it said, hey, don't you guys know, that this story predated Christianity? Don't you know that Horus and Dionysus and Krishna were all born on December 25th, uh, were virgin born, had 12 disciples, walked on water, died on a cross for sin, rose again for salvation. Don't you know that all of this stuff predated Paul writing this down as the story? Don't you know that? And so people saw that movie, it's called Zeitgeist, and they all went crazy and said, oh my goodness, Christianity's over. Now, what do we do with the fact that all of that's sh- partly, I mean, let's just, if you get into the parallels, there's not a lot of actual parallels, but let's just assume for the sake of this series that there's an exact parallel, all right? Forget the fact that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th and, you know, all that stuff. That's aside. Let's just assume all of those are parallels. What do we do with it? What do we do with the fact that these are parallels? Do we lose our faith and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe it? There was a story like this that predated Jesus, and so we have to give up. That's how a lot of Christians have actually dealt with it. right? They have said, because these stories existed, here's what it is, Satan put it there as a distraction in the world. That's how lots of Christians have dealt with it. Um, Justin Martyr, <clears throat> he wrote this. He was a uh, uh, you know, long, long, long time ago. He said this, those who hand down the myths which the poets have made by the influence of the wicked demons to deceive and lead astray the human race. For having heard it proclaimed through the prophets that the Christ was to come, so all the Old Testament prophets saying, Jesus is gonna come, Jesus going come, and then the demons hear that proclaimed under the impression that they would be able to produce in men the idea that the things which were said with regard to Christ were mere marvelous stories. Right? So basically what he's saying is Satan put these stories into Egypt, into people's lives and minds, so that when Christianity came along, it was already completely discredited. That's how a lot of Christians have dealt with it. But I think there's a far more compelling explanation. And I think it's the one that the Bible throws at us right here. Here's what Paul says. Look at verse 16 to 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are all pre-Christian ideas. There was festivals set up, new moons. Verse 17, now, you've got a pen. Here's the words you've got to underline. These are a shadow, underline the word shadow, of the things to come, and then underline the word, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, here's what he's saying. There's these stories, these festivals, these new moons, which predate Christianity, but they're shadows. Now, what's a shadow do? Uh, Yesterday, I was having a barbecue at my house and my buddy, uh, he wasn't home, but I went over to his house and I had to get mustard, all right? This is what I do on Saturday, by the way. So uh, my wife says, go get mustard, we're having a barbecue. I said, fine. So I go over to my buddy's house. I know he's not home. So I plug in the code for his garage, it goes up. I go in his house and he has a code for his house too. So I go in his house and I go to put the code off for his house. And I open the door, and the code's not on. And I'm like, why isn't the code on? I know he's not here. And I sit, and I listen. And I look, and I see a shadow. There's a room, two doors, and there's a, there's a shadow. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what? There's someone in here. And the shadow's, like, moving. And I'm like, oh man, oh man, I'm going to have to kill someone. Um, <laughs> that's probably going I'm going to have to run. Um, and I look at the shadow, and all of a sudden, this... Face just pops out, and goes, hello, and I'm like, ah, and it was his cleaning lady. All right, now <laughs> she's lucky at did and whoops, the monster. So here I'm looking at a shadow, and, and a shadow anticipates the thing, the, the solid thing, right? It, it, and if you follow the shadow, you're gonna hit the substance, the real thing. And Paul says, There's all this predated stuff, these stories and festivals and new moons. And the point of them is they were a shadow that was supposed to lead us to the substance who is Christ. And so he says there's these stories through human history etched into us that aren't supposed to lead us away from Christ, but by God's grace, he installed them into the human spirit in order to lead us to Jesus that finally we go like and talk to missionaries who go into villages in Africa and they go in and they explain verse 8 to 15. Here's God. Here's what he's done for you. We were aside and God came and died and they say, oh my goodness, We've heard a story like this before, but it was mythology. It was written in the stars that the divine star fell one day and became a human being, but then he died because Orion's belt, blah, 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 And they go, no, 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 here's the reality. All those stories were prepping your heart. God was walking human history down a path so that he could come and fulfill it. So that he could come and actually historically say, You know these stories you've been telling for thousands of years? I actually came and did it. It's for real. It's for real. The substance is Christ. Now all the myths, all the stories are true. Now, this is exactly what C.S. Lewis's problem was. C.S. Lewis said, here's what I love. I love the stories. I love the myths. I love King Arthur. And then if Christianity is true it means Horus isn't true, and Dionysus isn't true. But I love those stories. I think they're great. And literally, if Christianity is true, then it means all those stories were just lies. Even though they got my heart all riled up, they're just lies. He says, lies breathe through silver. They're just distracting us from the truth. Now, some stories are lies, right? Some stories, I, uh, I had a camping trip with uh, my daughter's uh, class this week. So we went away Wednesday, Thursday, up to, up to some camp in the middle of nowhere. And you all know I'm not a good camper. So I was terrified that I'd get lost out. in. there was like a trailer park right beside it. If I went off into the trailer park, I wouldn't know how to build a fire. And it was crazy time. So I take all the kids out. And uh, my, I, I take these two boys out in a canoe. And we're going in the canoe. And we go up. And there's a massive rope hanging off a tree against this rock. And I'm like, oh yeah, now it's for real. I want to see some kids bleed. So I said, all right. All right, if you're a true man, uh, you will f- climb this rope and you will have adventure now. And then you like, know, put down your iPhone and let's have some adventure now, all right? So the kid's like, okay. So kid, both kids get out. They get up on this rock, and they're holding on to this rope, and and literally, like, the water is basically touching their feet, all right? So they're not very high up. And he's like, "Eh, I don't know, now I'm up here. I don't think I want to do this. I'm like, come on, what what do you mean? He's like, I don't know. My mom says I'm not really supposed to be near water, and this looks really high, and now that I'm up, I just don't know. Maybe I just, you know, maybe I just come back in the canoe and, and not do this. I'm like... Okay, whatever you want to do. He's like, huh, I don't know. I just, I just, you know, water, I'm not great. And the rock's here. And I, I just don't know. If it. if I said, okay, well, whatever you want to do. And then he kind of goes, okay, I'll do it. And he goes. And literally, like, his feet are, like, dragging on the water all right, as he goes with his rope. And he falls into the water. And he gets back in. And we start paddling back. And I said, hey, good job, bro. And he's like, yeah, yeah, guys. I've always been a bit of a risk taker. <laughs> That's what he says. I've always been a risk taker. And I'm like, sorry, what? And so, so yes, there are times when stories are clearly distracting us from reality, from truth. But what Lewis came to understand through conversations with people is that these stories were prepping us. All along human history, God was wiring narratives into our brain so that we could react when, as, as, as Lewis says, when the myth becomes fact. And this is what he wrote about in, a, in an essay called Myth Become Fact. And he says this, the old myth of the dying God comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date in a particular place from Osiris dying, nobody knows when or where, because that wasn't a story, to a historical person crucified. It's all in order. Under Pontius Pilate, it says, Christ is more than Osiris, not less. We must not be ashamed of the parallels they ought to be there. It would be a stumbling block if they weren't. Just what he's saying. And for some of you, that right there is the freeing reality in your brain you need to hear. That when you start connecting, when you're watching Man of Steel and somebody Howard Shore's score just makes you go, oh, it's like, man, or, or, or uh, uh, Hans Zimmer's score. And you're like, oh my goodness, I feel like I'm connecting to some transcendent here. There is something going on. God is trying to communicate to you and trying to say, listen, here's reality. Here's what happened. We told this story over and over and over and over again in our life until it became true. We told it over and over until it became true. And here's where I would even go with this. Forget the stories for a second. We'll come back to that. Think about your own life. When you go through pain. What is that? That's a shadow that's pointing you to something. The substance is Jesus. The pain is trying to get your attention and say, hey, this isn't something other than the story. This is the shadow. When you experience joy, what is that? It's like a little weed growing up through through concrete. It's like, hey, there's heaven, you know that. You know when you fight after pleasure and it seems fleeting? It's going, hey, there's a place where, where all of this was your reality in the garden, but it was lost in sin. But the story goes back there if you receive Jesus. That's what pleasure is. And it's fleeting. And you go, hey, I want it, I want it. And it disappears. And he goes, ah, trying to, it's a shadow. It's a pointer. It's an anticipation of what I'm offering you in Jesus Christ. This is what he's trying to do. So when you go through difficulty... One of, the, one of the camp kids, we were sitting there doing devotions uh, one morning, and he talked about his own pain when he left Kansas. He lived in Kansas, and he had to move to B.C. because of work. Uh, his, his father's work, not his. And, um, and he came, and he said, it was really hard because I had no friends. But I came out here, and you know what? I have better friends now. But I went through this really difficult time of pain. And then he said this. It was profound. I was thinking about this. He said, you know, it's kind of like Jesus, You know, Jesus went through pain. He went through the cross, but that was the way that he would experience the resurrection. And he connected his own pain to Jesus. And that's precisely what Paul says, anything in your life, not just stories, but the stuff in your life, the moments of pleasure. They're trying to get your attention toward a God who loves you and came for you and died for you the moments of joy, the moments of of, of pain and suffering. He's saying, hey, that's me. I identify with that. I went through pain and suffering. That's my story. And I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to recognize that this is what I came to do for you. This is what life is. So here's what Paul's been saying. The gospel is the true and better story. It's the true and better romance Think about it. My kid uh, is in Shrek right now. She's doing uh, she's doing three plays Shrek, uh, Shrek musical Friday, Saturday, and today. And uh, I'm watching that story. And it's you know a princess in a castle who needs to be rescued. And they kind of play on the fairy tales, and we all connect to that story. Literally, the biblical story is of a, of, of a guy with a sword who comes to rescue a bride from a dragon. That's the Bible. Jesus is literally a prince. He's the son of a king who comes, and then they call him, of course, the king of kings himself, and has a sword in Revelation 19, and slays and kills a dragon in order to rescue the bride, which is the church. It's the true and better romance. It's the true and better rags and riches. You are the ugly duckling, the gospel says. You are the ugly duckling. When you watch Beauty and the Beast, what is that? A beautiful woman kisses an ugly, disgusting beast who's not deserving of her love and reforms him. What is the gospel? You are the beast. You are not, you just went, well, I'm the beautiful woman and I go up and kiss some people and free them. No, you are the beast. So when you're watching these stories, What's happening in your soul? Well, I went to UBC, and they said in my deconstruction class, there's no such thing as meta narrative. There's no such thing as truth. And so I know these stories aren't real. They're just fairy tales. Yeah, but then you go and see them, and your mind tells you they're candy, but your soul says there's something else. Your, your soul connects to them and goes, but, but I want it to be true. The gospel is the true and better uh, uh, horror story, right? Where, where literally a guy comes and slays a monster, and f- sets people free. The gospel is the true and better voyage and return story. Jesus leaves the shire, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, leaves heaven. No, you don't believe me. All right, listen, before I pray for you, Ephesians, Ephesians 5, check this out, all right? Check this out, this will blow your mind. If it doesn't, you're not awake. Okay, here's what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 5, to explain... Jesus as the true and better voyage and return story. All right? Here's what he says. Uh, Verse 31 and 32. He quotes Genesis 2. Of course, we all hear this when we go to weddings, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And we go, okay, that's about a guy leaving his mom and dad, being united to a woman, and getting married, which is the text I preach at most weddings. And that's the first plane of it. But then Paul says something crazy. 32, this mystery is profound. Thanks for telling me, Paul. He's like, ooh, what am I about to write is killer. He says this, and I'm saying that it refers, listen, to Christ and the church. Wait a minute. What do you mean? You see what he just said? He said, Genesis 2 About a man leaving his father and his mother and coming and being united, cleaving to a woman and being united to her forever? Isn't it really about marriage? It's about Jesus. Well, when did Jesus leave his father? Oh, he did. And he came and was united to his wife. His wife is who? The church. And the two unified to never separate in the context of a covenant. Paul just said, hey, even marriage is a shadow and a pointer to the substance who is Jesus. He left heaven. He left the comfort to accomplish something and then went back. It's the true and better romance. It's the true and better horror. It's the true and better voyage and return. It's the true and better... It's." This, God weaved this into us. So when you're watching Peter Pan and you're like, man, it would be awesome to be able to have a world where I could fly and never grow old. And your kid, see, if you come from a secular vantage point and you sit your kid down and you go, hey, kid, and the kid goes, man, I wish there were white knights that slayed dragons. I wish there was a world where I never had to grow old and I could fly around. If you come from a purely secular mindset, all you do is look at that kid and go, sorry, kid. It's all a fairy tale. Good night, click. But if you're a Christian, you get to go, ah, kid, there is a white knight. There is a world where we never grow old. The reason you pine for that is because it's in you. He stitched it. Ecclesiastes says he stitched it into your soul so that you pine for it. You want it to be true. And the gospel comes along and goes, it is if you believe in Jesus. It is the secular world says this, you go to a story, your soul gets enraptured and you leave and the lights come up and that's it. Sorry, man. And the Christian story goes, uh, he's trying to get your attention because there is a world where there's no more pain and no more death and no more sickness and where no one ever dies and where white knights really do accomplish what we want them to. But the key is this, the princess doesn't get her to save herself. Even in the Shrek story, Shrek goes up, slays the dragon or, or pretends to slay the dragon and he becomes a friend later and brings Princess Fiona down and they go out and I'm sitting there watching that story. And I'm like, she couldn't free herself. And the humility here is you can't save yourself. You need Jesus to come and do it for you. That's what Paul's laying out here. And the humility to go, all right, I can't save myself. It's not about finding my true self and finding me and I'll just go and win the victory and I'm going to prove myself to God and show him I'm worthy to be saved. I'm worthy to be rescued from this tower. He goes, no, 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 you're not worthy. Remember, you're the beast. But him by his grace, he'll set you free from your prison, not because of you, but because of him. So let me pray for that.